Thank you, Jean. I get the great pleasure of travelling with uh, many of the people whose names don't get heard so much, Will Gunnels, as their representatives this morning. They're a lot of fun to travel with. You should try it sometime if you get the chance. I want to start with prayer. Father, we know that only if your spirit works in our hearts, our minds, our imaginations can any change be accomplished that comes from you. We thank you for the promise that when we come to you and ask for that help, you will send your spirit, and we pray for that spirit now. Lord, we live in times that are hard to comprehend, and we are glad that we do not have to comprehend them. We have to trust in you and then use our minds under devotion, the guidance of your spirit to do what you would have us do. So be, us, be with us in that objective now, Lord. And if anything I say is not from you, may it be swiftly forgotten for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, some of you probably had more than enough already, in which case you should grab your neighbor by the hand and go and get a cup of coffee and talk to one another. I will not be in any way upset. Uh, overload is something that David manages to organize very well. Uh, that's unfair, you know. I have uh, greatly enjoyed my... Uh, interesting relationship with David Stevens over the years since I first called him an intellectual barbarian uh, I didn't that's what he called himself I called him an intelligent barbarian which was an accurate description uh, a brighter man have I rarely met and one whose education was neglected came in the same category uh, which is why we run Augustine College and this year the two medical students we had were a joy uh, one of your brightest students from Southwestern described the whole experience as being a theological and intellectual makeover. The best thing that had happened to her in the whole of her secondary education. Uh, we take your children from an 80% probability of losing faith to an 80% probability of keeping it. The whole concept of the history of ideas was what brought me back into contact with Christian students, some what, 20 years ago now, when a student knocked on my door and said, I heard you talk about losing faith in medical school, will you help us? And I said, yes, I'll do four weeks, and I've never stopped since. Uh, the appalling part of what I discovered in the next few months was how ignorant they were. Uh, highly intelligent kids who had been, whose education had been neglected, largely because, like many of you, you focused on medicine from grade eight onwards. And consequently, education becomes narrower and narrower, knowing, as we classically say, more and more about less and less. Um, grand rounds in many of the academic places now is entirely gene-speak, uh, with most people going to sleep. So that's why I do what I do. And amazingly, uh, the guys gave me four talks this time, which gives me a little time. The first one for those who were there was how we got to here in terms of history. The second was dealing with an outcome of that, how we misunderstand rights of conscience and what we need to do in distinguishing between thought and feeling. Uh, this one is to talk more about culture and development. This has had a major impact in the life of both my wife and myself. Uh, earlier in my career, before I became active as a Christian, um, one of my prime interests was severely malnourished children, 10-pound two-year-olds. And 
I went to the Caribbean in the 80s, 70s actually. Uh, I keep trying to make myself younger than I actually am. Uh, and was privileged to be part of the group that solved the science in the 70s, so that we went to the point where we went through 110 pound two-year-olds and saved every one. And the protocols were fairly simple, but they were counterintuitive as it happened. They're not what any good-hearted person would do, but they worked. Uh, they are not yet being carried out in most uh, medical mission settings that I know of. And it's had no impact whatsoever on the prevalence of malnutrition in Africa since the 1970s. Here we are, 20 years after the science has cracked, with no evidence that it made any difference. That is what took me uh, to Africa, uh, the question of why that was so. Uh, so I'm going to talk about development, material, intellectual, and spiritual. Uh, we need to think about it in all three categories. Because what I had to learn about malnutrition was that actually it's not a nutritional disorder. It's a cultural and spiritual disorder. Because all that we do in the area of technique, technology, medicine, science has underpinnings. And if those foundations are not there, it doesn't work. Now, I'm sure David could take you in Kenya, as I could in Zaire, to dozens of mills given to villages to stop women spending eight hours a day pounding maize. They rarely have a life expectancy of more than a couple of years. Why? You give a Toyota to an African who inhabits a pagan understanding of the world, and it will not last a fraction of the time if it, that it will if you give it to a missionary. It's not intelligence, it's culture. And what I had to learn about malnourished children is that to the people I was trying to teach nutrition education, it was incomprehensible. Because for them, when a child became malnourished, it was because an evil spirit had taken away the child's appetite. Now, if that is the true description of what's happening, then the rational, fundamental approach to the problem is to deal with the evil spirit, which is what they tried to do by the means that they had available. And that's where their money went. And the child died of malnutrition. I even had nurses that I'd trained have their children die. That was an insult at one level. So I asked the question, why did your child die? And the answer, of course, was that he wouldn't tell me. He looked at the ground, which told me he was going to give me the answer he knew I wanted and not what he believed, and he said we didn't feed him properly. So I sent the super, my supervisor. I said, I want to know what he really believes. And he came back and said, well, an evil spirit took away the child's appetite, and he'd spent the money on the witch doctor. How do you enter that world? I thought, well, this is easy. I said to him, if I had fed your child, he would have got better. He said, yes, but you have a stronger spirit. Isn't that an amazing response? Not one that we would ever make. I've had rich doctors say to me, I can't touch you because you have a stronger spirit. They see the world from an entirely different position. There are only half a dozen great stories that will support great cultural empires, so to speak. The biggest one of all is not Christianity, it's paganism. That in the history of the world has 
reared the biggest empires overall, not in the political sense, but in the cultural sense. Uh, Christianity is the greatest story, but the biggest one was animistic paganism. And if you think about it, if you're a missionary in particular, certainly in many parts of the world, animistic paganism explains the existential problems of life better than Christianity does. Your children die, apparently at random. Many of them do not reach maturity. Your crops fail, apparently at random. You have the worst governments in the world. How much evidence for a God of love is there in that story? Not very much. It takes a great deal of faith to believe in a God of love if that is your experience of the world. But what about evil spirits? They make perfect sense. They explain everything. And we all need a story that explains our lives. And if we don't have it, we start committing suicide. Which is why suicide is increasing in America more than it is elsewhere, because you've chosen a story that doesn't explain. You don't ask the big questions anymore. You watch Seinfeld that tries to pretend there are no big questions. But of course they are. Everybody has to answer the questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? How do I come to terms with mortality, especially my own? How do I understand suffering? How can I have the temerity to believe in justice in a world like ours? What can I know? What ought I to believe? You ought to believe some things. You have to believe something, whether you like it or not. What ought I to do? Those questions are fundamental. And the big stories answer it. So paganism has its answers, but it will only support a village and a tribe. It won't run a nation. Now, after that, there are the Eastern and Western stories. The, the Western ones are really three and two heresies. Uh, the big ones, of course, the big one is Judaism. And from that comes Christianity and Islam. And the heresies are Marxism and global capitalism. The same heresy, actually. Global capitalism will be a disaster in any nation that does not have Adam Smith's beliefs as opposed to his economics. Adam Smith believed in the fall and the sinfulness of man. We are beginning to pretend that doesn't exist in our education system, right? Children must be affirmed. They must not be forced to face the truth about who they are. The exact opposite of what our Lord would say. He'd say, start with blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who face the truth about themselves. So when the education system goes wrong, the whole thing is going to start collapsing, which is what is happening at the moment. Uh, Certainly after my generation of professors, it is going to be hard to find the kinds of guys I had for colleagues when we set up Augustine College. In fact, we cannot replace them. David Jeffrey spoke nine languages. Um, several of the others spoke five. I was the dummy. That's where we're going. Technical expertise replacing real learning. And the church, which was the source of real learning, has to get back on track if we're going to make progress. We are going to rule the world, but are we prepared? Could we do the job? The Jews understood this a long while ago. That's why a minority of Jews who get themselves properly educated run America, as they should, because they've done the work to make themselves competent. You read some line like, well, there's multiple ones you could choose, but uh, you go through Harvard, uh, 100 years ago, there were very few Jews because of uh, American educational anti-Semitism. Now they dominate the place. Luantin is probably my favorite example. There's a, a Marxist 
orientated uh, neurobiologist, developmental biologist, who nevertheless acknowledges that scientism is a faith uh, and writes for the New York Times regularly and is worth reading because he makes you think about the problems from their point of view. And we need to do that. In the, in the East, of course, you have Hinduism and Buddhism as the two major ones and multiple offshoots. Now, the difference between East and West is fairly simple at one level. In the East, God and nature are coextensive. So a wise man seeking to understand the world starts with what he knows best himself. So meditation is the way forward, the inward journey. The West, for a long while, had the story of the fall at its heart. And so it had some skepticism about the capacity to go inwards. And it had a reason for studying God's world. It's not surprising that science as we know it developed best in that environment. The Jews in particular had a story which from the beginning made that a possibility. I wonder how many of you, I'll see some of your hands, but raise your hands if you can tell me the two things in Genesis 1 which do not receive the intellect, the the accolade from God, and it was good individually. The whole creation does. But two things don't get an individual accolade. Have you ever noticed what they are? Raise your hand if you have. I see a single hand going up. Isn't that amazing? And you've all read Genesis 1 dozens of times. So had I. And who pointed that out to me, a Christian? No, Leon Cass, who Bush chose as his head of his ethics council and has written a wonderful book called uh, Reading Genesis for Wisdom one of the best books I've read in the recent, recent past. But the things that don't get it are the heavens and us. And there's good reason for us. He knew what was going to happen. And the heavens. Well, the Jews think he did that because he wanted them to understand that unlike all the tribes around them, the heavens were just one of my creations. They are not sacred. There, think the Jews, was where the possibility of science, which was not sacrilege, could begin. If all the tribes around them thought of creation as coming from some kind of cosmological sex, that made creation sacred. So science would be sacrilege, taking creation apart to understand it. But right there at the beginning of Jewish history, that wasn't the case. The possibility of science was there. Now, God kept the Jews from doing science for a good many, many centuries. They didn't do science. They were not involved in that story. Not until the last few hundred years. And they've cleaned up since then, haven't they? Why did God spend so long? It's what I want, a thought I want you to take away with you. Why is Kairos time, God's time, the right time, so different from Kronos? Each of those belief systems make some things possible and other things impossible. They make some things logical that would be not logical for the others. The logic, it will vary. The techniques of logic will be the same, but the conclusions that you will draw will be different. Uh, hence, a high-caste Hindu physician would typically not touch an untouchable to treat him, but a Christian would. Different story, different behaviors logically as a consequence of where you're coming from. I have a Muslim sister-in-law who found it very difficult to understand that people who did not know her and were not Muslims would help her to settle into Canada when she arrived to the extent of helping her and her husband 
to winterize their home, a thing that they had no clue about since they lived in Africa. That's an amazing story to her. She said, Muslims would do it for Muslims, but you do it for non-Muslims. It's not our doing, is it? It's the story we inhabit. And we've forgotten that. We've forgotten how to tell that story in a winsome way. And the young are in need of it, desperately in need of it, and they will listen when you start talking about it. The differences between cultures are usually described nowadays, sometimes in religious terms, but more often in political terms to lay a guilt trip on the West for colonialism. But all sorts of things are proposed. Language, colonialism, geography, climate. Darwin even proposed race. Any of you know the subtitle of The Origin of Species? It's about the survival or the increase of favoured races. Uh, if you really want to read about the racism of the Darwinists, uh, you need to read the next book, The Descent of Man. And they were also Darwin's brother-in-law, I think it was. Sir Galton was one of the major starters of the eugenics movement. Knowing your history is useful because it stops people in their tracks and makes them think again. Now, the biblical story about development, after that initial opening in Genesis 1, which makes science possible and tells us that we are creatures, the next thing to me that seems so amazing is the incredible commission that we are to nurture the world. We are to be stewards of the world. Usually abused, uh, especially by secularists who want to say that we are the cause of the exploitation of nature. We, yes, we often are, but it wasn't because we obeyed God, it was because we disobeyed. We will give an account of our use of every raw material that we use. Did we use God's nature as we ought to, starting with our own bodies and working outwards? That's a frightening thought, isn't it? Because all of us are going to be guilty of abuse of nature at that level in one way or another. Certainly I am. And the next thing that amazed me, and still continues to amaze me, and I don't have time to talk about it very much today, is the giving of the law. Uh, and this is fundamental to evangelical Christians in particular. Because when we went to Africa, we took with us a somewhat reduced understanding of salvation, uh, which majored in conversion, which is amazing and wonderful. But it is the overture to what God has to give us. It's not the whole thing. And the way I normally make this point now is to misquote St. Paul. I use misquotation as a teaching tool all the while. It's less use here because the lights are too bright and I can't see your faces. But in a decent lecture hall where you can see the faces, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I have multiple examples of this, but one that I enjoy using is from St. Paul. And the other thing I do is I paraphrase. That makes it a bit more difficult. So Paul says, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who have been saved, it is the power of God. Now, I would get a vague indication. Raise your hand if you know what I've just done to you. I see one over there go up. I, you know, on the front row, but they're being good and pretending they don't. You know, it's the American desire for egalitarianism, and since they can't equalize upwards, they're agreeing to dumb down. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> um, but do you want a second try? Paul says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who have been saved, it is the power of God. 
Now what I have done to you is that I've changed the tense of one verb. The second verb should not be have been saved, but are being saved. Does that make a difference? It does, doesn't it? The question we are to ask ourselves is, how was I saved yesterday? Have I been saved today? Where is God working on my salvation now? That's hugely important in Africa. In Rwanda, they had an amazing revival in the 1930s. People danced in the streets with joy because the gospel liberated them from the fear of evil spirits. And we were, of course, delighted. But we didn't do the next job. They have spent the next 60, 70, what is it? That sort of time, anyway, 60, 70 years trying to keep the feeling alive. Does that describe your church? A place where you try to keep the feeling alive? Can't do that. That's not the human thing to do. Paul doesn't do anything about keeping the feeling alive. I can even get away with this in an Episcopal church. I'll say, why did Paul write the epistles? No response. They've not a clue. Uh, they certainly couldn't give me a thumbnail sketch of each epistle, which you ought to be able to do. I say, well, he wrote them for practical purposes. And at the end, he'll say something like this. If you have understood my argument, then you ought not to be like the people around you. You should be transformed by the renewal of your feelings. Now, I'm glad you understand that one. Uh, now, in an Episcopal church, largely they won't, because they go for the beauty of the music and to feel better. So, since they're actually not listening to what I'm saying anyway, feeling is the right word. Uh, but it's not Paul's word. It's your mind that he wants to change. Now, we went to Africa and we set up programs to resuscitate these children. I trained my teenagers to do it and they could do it. They succeeded. I trained a guy to supervise it. He could do it as long as I was there. But when I left, his heart was not in it because his mind was differently located. It didn't work. I knew it wouldn't, but I needed to demonstrate that it wouldn't. The next step was my wife's doing, because she's a social activist. She likes to get things done. Her main uh, job in life seems to be to try and make me useful. <laughs> if one actually knew what usefulness would mean for me, I don't know whether one would still be interested, but that's her task. And it's very good that she does, because we wouldn't have gone to Africa without her. But we did go. And I set up the program and I straightened out the pediatric ward and a year later that when we came back after the first trip out for a year and then a break, the ward was back to square one. Uh, the program I could demonstrate in my cynicism, although to other people it looked good, to my point of view it was in decline and would reach the same state that it started from in a predictable length of time. The result was that I wasn't doing enough good for my wife's satisfaction. And she said to me, why are you sitting around doing nothing this year? What's happened to your enthusiasm? And I said, I'm thinking. <laughs> to which she gave a typical response, it looks to me as though you're doing nothing. <laughs> to which I replied, typically, that's what thinking looks like to you. And the escalation of that discussion you can well imagine. <laughs> but, but she won because... She said, at least you can do a Bible study for the African graduates 
who are unemployed in the village. Now, that struck me like a two-by-four over the head. Because if I've had a student in my class for a year, even a biochemistry class, they will go away with a reading list which will keep any average mortal going for the rest of their life. In other words, they will not ever be unemployed again by choice. By dint of necessity, it will only be by choice. They may be unpaid, I can do nothing about that, but unemployment ought to be not an issue. But for these Africans, it was. All that they had got from university was not the education that somebody from my background would have got because they came with different underpinnings which weren't adequate to the deal. And all they'd got is the unwillingness to get their hands dirty. They were doing nothing. Now, it happened by the grace of God that I had had the great privilege of listening to a series of lectures in Ottawa by one of your greatest scholars, a man called Bruce Walkey, whom I hope you know, but you may not, and if not, you can go and find him and read his stuff. He's an Old Testament scholar, one of the best, uh, uh, translated uh, parts of the, the New International Version, and I'm sure consulted on many others, and also a, a wonderful man. And he gave a lecture on covenant. And in that lecture, he said, if you ask a Jew, how come the Jews survive despite their history? They will tell you it is because they have a covenant. These are Orthodox Jews, of course. And they will send you to Deuteronomy 6. Now, I, of course, didn't know. I didn't know what Deuteronomy 6 was when I got there, but I didn't know that it was Deuteronomy 6. I wasn't that well tutored in Deuteronomy. But... It's the Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. What blew me away is what comes next. And it took me about five years. The first time David talked to me about this, and we made a recording of it, it's actually a defective recording, because I'd only got half of it at that point. Uh, I, even though we were reading it, neither of us noticed that I'd missed a phrase out. Uh, do you know what the next phrase is? Well, I can't see you. It's not worth doing that. But it, it's, these things shall be upon your heart. What an amazing, we all think, and your neighbor is yourself. But that's Leviticus, actually. That's the holiness code. But no, these things shall be upon your heart. But you can't put things on your heart at will. This is something you have to start praying about. Is this story central to my life? What is there at heart is the, is the central crux of education, which is why the faculty of education and education programs in general are a disaster. You can't teach teachers to teach. It's not something we can do. Deuteronomy is teaching that. These things must be upon your heart and you must teach them diligently to your children. Here are two passions. You can't teach passion. It's a gift. The faculty of education is a failure because it tries to do something that's impossible. You will not find anybody who will say to you, the faculty of education taught me things which were of, the fundamental, of fundamental importance for the rest of my life. They made me into teachers. No. What did was the exposure to children. 
But even that's not enough. Most of your teachers love children but don't love learning, which is why the kids don't learn very much. Some of your, your teachers love learning but don't love children. That's why your kids don't like that teacher and fear that teacher, but they will learn some French, some mathematics, some whatever. Just occasionally, you meet a teacher who loves children and loves learning. And that is what it's all about. That is why homeschooling is so successful. Because it's got one love for certain, the love of the child. And if you love the child and want them to learn, you're going to love learning yourself. It works. Dramatically. My favorite example of this is to sell in a book by an American author, which many of you have not read, and I've been trying for years, and am having some success, although I see there's still no Wendell Berry in the CMDA uh, bookshop. Or at least if there was, they'd all gone by the time I went and did my routine check. and Found a book by Borgman that I'd been trying to get and didn't know that it was there, so I bought it. There's one left on technology. How that got there, I don't know, but it's a lovely book. Uh, it stuck out like a sore thumb to me. But Wendell Berry would have a Nobel Prize for literature if he wasn't a Christian. And he's written a beautiful set of historical novels about an imagined community in Kentucky over the whole of the last century. The first one is a beautiful love story between a, a farmer and a school teacher. The farmer is a man called Ptolemy, and you can describe him in one sentence in a way that you immediately see. He says, Ptolemy was a big man whose clothes looked as though they had been taken by surprise 20 minutes after he put them on. <laughs> You've got the man in your head immediately. A wonderful guy. Miss Minnie, on the other hand, was a school teacher, diminutive but perfectly capable of running a one-room school house with perfect discipline. But he says of Miss Minnie, Miss Minnie went to teacher's college where she learned many cunning techniques which she never subsequently used. <laughs> because Miss Minnie loved children and she loved books and she taught by merely introducing the one to the other. Passion. What Walkie taught me was that it was the teaching of the stories of the Bible, the Old Testament, to a Jew that makes him Jewish. Just as the teaching of the book of nature to a pagan makes him a pagan. Many of your children's books are pagan books, not Christian ones. The picture books matter. They teach ethics in a way that ethicists can't do because that's when ethics are formed. If you inhabit the Quran, you become a Muslim ethically and so on. And if you watch television, you become an American ethically and you end up with Enron and the like. Because you used to be biblically literate and now you are biblically illiterate. Especially your young people. Because you took the Bible out of school, what, 40 years ago now? And so you have people who can no longer understand their own language because they don't understand the metaphors. I had a South African doctor who sent me a quotation last week from Robert Frost. He said, you came to mind immediately when I read this. It's Robert Frost, an atheist, wrote, if you do not know your metaphors, you ought not to be let loose on society. <laughs> if you do not know, weighed in the balances and found wanting. If you do not know the writing on the wall, if you do not know Eilis in Gaza, if they do not immediately bring biblical stories to mind, you're not fit to lead. You're not going to lead into a Christian way forward, you're going to lead into a secular way forward. That's what's happened to us. 
So I started teaching this Bible study on Deuteronomy at my wife's behest in bad French. Fortunately, she speaks good French. My son was there. We managed. And then we had an amazing experience. God sent us a translator who walked nearly a thousand kilometers to get to us. And he did not know why, but he did speak English. He was just about five or ten kilometers away. He'd been a Muslim who became discontented with Islam, had a recurrent dream which led to his conversion. He got, heard the gospel once, believed it and was baptized. It was the answer. There was no question. Then he had another dream telling him and his, to go to Zaire from Tanzania. And he walked around Lake Tanganyika. Uh, I asked him, why would you obey a dream which had no objective? And he said, the first one was so good, why would I disobey the second? <laughs> we could do with a bit of that, couldn't we? We want objectives all the while. I hate objectives. I used to write them for the educators and take absolutely no notice of them. How could you have objectives for people that you have not yet to meet and in whom you wish to instill passion, which you cannot know that you can do? It's like mission statements. I hate them too for somewhat similar reasons. No, Christ is always concerned about character. And that's what we should be concerned about. So we started teaching this. To my amazement, they were fascinated. Very shortly, to cut a long story short, the tribal church leaders insisted that I teach the whole church annual meeting. And they had an amazing out-of-doors experience teaching. It must have been 6,000 Africans, Deuteronomy 6, one afternoon. Then Sally had, rightly, the coup de grace with this because... A day or so later, I think it was, she was being driven by the guy who drives us every year, a wonderful driver, from one place to another. And he said this. He said, I listened to John. He was Christian. They were all Christian. And, of course, what I was teaching them was the Jewish thing that it's the father's job to teach the stories of the Bible to his children in his voice by the age of seven. That's where they get their ethics and their behavioral patterns from, their character. But these Africans don't eat with their children. Never with the girls, and with the boys only after puberty. But I could try and teach them nutrition education when nowhere, but with this I could say, thus saith the Lord. The Lord says, you must teach your children. So he'd gone home and for the first time had a meal with his children. And he said, I noticed that one of my children was a slow eater, so I gave him his own plate. That's malnutrition over in one afternoon of the teaching Deuteronomy 6. You see, they eat from a common pot. So the little runt never gets a fair share. He's doomed. We have lots of pictures. But once Deuteronomy entered, that changed. We have neglected the care of the souls of our children. And it has entered the church too. And it's entering our organizations as well. We think in post-endarkenment categories. What are the measures of success, if they are entirely quantitative, then the enemy has got an outpost in your head. David rightly said the most important thing is the transformation of lives. There are no units of transformation except people, are there? And that's the bottom line. You see, the church at the end of the year tends to look at the budget, the number of people who came along, etc., etc., all the things you can measure. That's wrong. That's going from quality to quantity. 
And haven't you noticed that all the things that matter most to everyone in the world cannot be quantified? Love, truth, justice, honor, mercy, fidelity, you name them. They have no material existence. Does that mean they're not real? Just the opposite. You can live, most Americans could live for a year or two without food, but you can't live without love. No. It's these things that we're short of, and this is what we need to, to concentrate on. The missionaries went there and saw the problems in quantitative terms and started transferring or attempting to transfer techniques. It doesn't work. And it's been a disaster even within the church because the less than good members of the church began to realize that the development arm of the church had the money. So very shortly, they drive a Toyota and the bishop has a bicycle. What message does that send to the Africans about what is important? It's the wrong message, isn't it? No, the bottom line is how do we create virtue? if development is to happen. What are God's methods for the creation of virtue? And they are generational. You do not become good the day after you're converted, do you? Can any of you raise your hand and say, I wish all the Christians in my workplace would be more explicit about their faith? Are there not some Christians in your workplace who you wish would be a lot more silent about their faith? Because the quality of their work is not a good witness? Who would you choose for your accountant if you needed a new accountant and when you got to the bottom of the list you had the two choices, equally qualified. One, a wondrously recently converted charismatic who had a problem with gambling and the second, a third generation Mennonite who's lost his faith. If you don't choose the Mennonite, you're a fool. Because he will live in Mennonite ways. He will statistically be highly likely to be trustworthy. Because in exactly the same way, do you not have many colleagues whose work is excellent and whom you trust completely, who claim to have no beliefs or no active ones? The pre-evangelism question for them is something like this. Once a year, take the opportunity to say, I enjoy working with you. When I refer patients, they're treated well. I get good notes to keep me in contact. Thank you. Where does that come from? It's not common these days. And because they're that sort of person, they'll stop and they'll say, well, actually not from me. I guess I was brought up that way. And then you can pursue that story. I guarantee that in most cases, within a generation or two, you will find a deep religious commitment to Christianity or Judaism. That's pre-evangelism. That can help you to work. Now, it's now flashing at 2.25. Does that mean anything? I have no idea where we are, in other words. I've got five minutes, that's all. Oh, dear. What happened with the endarkenment is because it was so successful, faith was privatized and public arena became dominated by physical facts. And that's happened to the church as well. We've got to go back to bring into the general environment what we have privatized. That's going to be the last talk today, so it's okay. Because the last talk, the last talk of my four, is about the end of secularism. There is good news on the horizon. Um, but 
What we need to recognize at this stage, and by the way, if you want this, that bit of the talk more expanded and applied to America, it's in the talk called Why Are There No Hittites on the Streets of New York. But here's some talking points for you that you might want to write down, some of you. They're taken from Arnold Toynbee and his view of what was going to happen to our culture. In fact, his interest was the history of the decline of cultures. At the end of his life, he, he wrote a book called An Historian Looks at Religion. And he'd studied well over 20 cultures in the history of the world that had come and gone. And he ended up with a list of six things which were the indicators of a culture on the terminal skids. And none of these six things are quantifiable. That's a message in itself, isn't it? Let me give you the six. You can write them down and use them as things to talk to your colleagues about in the next week or two. This, this is so secular, they won't even realize where you're taking them. <laughs> Just give them a list and say, do you think this is true? Is this what causes cultures to decline and disappear? That's what this man thought. The first is loss of moral consensus. A society cannot operate effectively if there is no agreement on the nature of good and evil. We do not have that agreement. That's why the best of the philosophers, people like McIntyre, tell you that an ethicist cannot tell you what to do unless he knows what you believe or what the patient believes. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to ethics. If you believe that life has no meaning and that your own desires come first, then of course abortion is a right of sorts. If you believe that life is sacred, created by God, and account will be given for your use of it, there's no way you could ever do it. Both are rational positions. They are incommensurable. Two worlds. Uh, no, that's number one. Number two, disrespect for law. Is that growing? Those of you of my age remember when you didn't lock doors that you now lock, right? The growth of the locking industry has been incredible. And in Britain, it's the looking industry as well, where everybody gets recorded on, on video at least six times a day, I'm told. Everywhere you go, there are cameras. That's the best hope you've got. Number three, retreat into private worlds. Just think of the problems of drugs and alcohol. It's private worlds. Number four, self-hatred. Just think of anorexia, bulimia, obesity, and this epidemic of absolutely ridiculous plastic surgery. Don't you all know that there's one message God has written into every cell in your body? It has a fancy name called cell apoptosis. What it means is very simple. It means die. <laughs> Every cell has that message written into it. The only question is when God is going to pull the trigger. The good news is he has a new body for you. Somewhere it will be recognizable, but it also goes through walls. It's going to be an interesting new body. Number five is a sense of alienation. Listen to rock songs if you want to hear alienation, as my son pointed out to me. The young are alienated from the world around them. Hence the random violence. There is no meaning in their lives. 
They're desperate for meaning and purpose. You give a lecture on meaning and purpose and the lecture hall is filled. It's amazing. Everybody is empty. Even Christians to a considerable degree. Because we are not majoring in the majors. Uh, the enemy has an outpost in our head. And finally, promiscuity. Intellectual as well as sexual. Now the sexual one you all know about, it's been the big disease revolution of my lifetime. When I was a cynic in medical school, I knew that knowledge of two or at the most three sexually transmitted diseases would ensure that I did not fail finals in that area. And that was easy to do. Now you need 30, 40, whatever. Who knows? That's not progress. And intellectual uh, promiscuity. By that I mean the amazing capacity of modern students to hold half a dozen logically incompatible ideas in their head at the same time and not even know they're doing it. Even death with dignity is a logical error. Think about it. I'm not going to tell you the answer. It's good for you to stew on it. But thank you for listening.